0: Well, if you're new with us, we've been going through 1 Peter for the past couple months. And we're finding ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, so if you'll turn there with me. We're going to cover today verses 7 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And there's a parable of Jesus that the Gospel of Matthew records that I want to open up with to set our minds on what I think Peter is thinking about in this passage. You may know it well, it's the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. Listen to what Jesus says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. You see, this parable shows the temptation we all face to not be ready and to think we have plenty of time to get our affairs in order. And it also reveals a truth about the kingdom of God that we really need to understand. And I think what Peter is doing In our passage is taking the truth of this parable, this truth about the kingdom of heaven, and showing us what it looks like to live when the end is at hand. I see three emphases from this passage. And the first emphasis is right at the beginning on our present situation. Peter opens with a view of our present situation that is worth reflecting on when we consider the point he is making in this passage. Notice the beginning of verse seven. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. The idea in Peter's mind is the consummation of the present age. And notice how this relates to the previous verses. In chapter four, verse five, Peter says that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, this age that we are in, the present age that we live in, is on a trajectory towards a final consummation. And that consummation is the moment when Christ physically returns to judge the world. Those who trust in Christ will go into everlasting joy in the presence of God forever. And those who deny him to everlasting torment and condemnation. This is the day that all of life is moving towards. It's a day fixed, it's a day set by the Father in heaven and Peter says that day is at hand. Take that in for a moment. When I did I thought how am I supposed to think about this Statement, knowing that 2,000 years have passed since Peter wrote that. Was Peter just confused? I don't think so. We don't need to draw into the deception that the apostles just had some kind of weird misconception that Christ was coming back right away. We should take this as truth from God to the people who first received this letter and to us, that the end is always near. The end is knocking at the door. And I think if we're honest with our hearts when we read these words, there's an unspoken disbelief that we don't believe that to be true. And in many ways, we live in light of that. We think we have plenty of time left. We think we have tomorrow. We think we have next year. But the reality is, we need to change our minds to think biblically and to understand what the Bible says about the end of times. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, 42, and 44, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows Not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And Peter says in his second letter that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. There are many more that we could read all saying things like this. Like a thief in the night at an unknown day, soon, All of these things describe the way in which the end will take place. So don't let your heart be lulled to sleep. Church, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end is at hand. And what Peter wants, and what God wants, is for that to change and shape the way we live. That reality, that truth It's like how someone working for the fire services lives while they are on call. If a firefighter is on call, they will orient everything to be ready to go at a moment's notice. They will back their car in so it's easier to get out. And they will manage all of their time wisely, knowing that if that call comes, they will be ready to get up and go. Now, with that in mind, let's notice how Peter specifically wants our present situation to change our lives. And this brings us to the second emphasis of this passage. And it's the main emphasis living when the end is at hand. Look at what Peter says in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, be self-controlled. as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The first thing to notice is that these commands are because the end is at hand. That's what the therefore means. The reality that the end is at hand means we should live this way. Do this because you know Christ will return at any moment and do this constantly. Do you see how understanding that frees us up to pursue these commands? How believing that changes everything? If Christ is returning at any moment and our hope is set fully on his return and we know that abundant grace and joy everlasting awaits us at the moment of his return, we can live completely differently in this life. It changes everything. If we really truly believe that, it changes everything. So now, let's think through these commands and their relationship to one another. What does Peter want us to do in light of that truth? Notice the first two in verse 7 Be self controlled and sober minded. Both of these commands entail aspects of our minds and our attitudes. And hopefully you see that they bring in specific concepts based on what Peter has been saying throughout this letter. To be self-controlled is an attitude of the mind to bring your entire nature under control. You will not be ruled by your passions. We remember that Peter has been saying to abstain. From the passions of our lust, to be self controlled, to think rightly and bring them under our control. And if you remember, the term sober minded was used previously in chapter 1, verse 13. In fact, turn back there with us because this is a pivotal verse in this letter. Peter says, therefore, because of everything that God has done in salvation and because of what awaits you, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, being sober minded then involves having a clear and a steady mindset about the reality of our present situation and circumstances. And what awaits us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Think rightly about these things, church. Because as we do, nothing shakes that. Nothing throws us off balance and takes our hope off of Christ's return, even suffering. No inconvenience, no difficulty, no suffering, because our hope is fully fixed and our minds are thinking rightly about what is to come. Joy everlasting. Now, before we move on to the next commands, I hope you saw it. Notice the additional reason that Peter gives for being self-controlled and sober-minded at the end of verse seven. He says, for the sake of your prayers. The phrase literally reads, for prayer. And what does Peter mean by this? I started the week thinking it could connect with 1 Peter 3.12, where he quotes Psalm 34 and says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in this case, it would be saying if we're not self-controlled and sober-minded, we're not assured that our prayers are heard because ultimately we're not assured that we're in Christ. But by the end of the week, in studying this a little further, I believe he means that our prayers are affected by self-control and sober-mindedness. That being self-controlled and sober-minded influences, directs, and even strengthens our prayers. You can see how this would work. So if we're self-controlled and we're not carried along by our impulses, if we're thinking rightly about our present circumstances and eternity, our prayers become shaped by this. We pray differently, we think differently. I read a story about a man from England in 1910 named Joe Evans which illustrates this. Joe Evans was known as a man of prayer, and while on holiday, he felt a strange and urgent burden to pray for King Edward VII. So Joe responded by praying, and by the end of the day, he found himself praying fervently for the conversion of the king until he personally had peace in his soul. The next day, he woke up and he heard that King Edward had died. Years later, he was having dinner with a prominent evangelical minister in England named Dr. Mantle. And while they were speaking, Dr. Mantle told Joe that King Edward VII was saved on his deathbed. So Joe asked, tell me more. And he discovered that towards the end, King Edward had taken a turn for the worst And had suddenly requested to see a tract that his mother gave him as a kid titled The Sinner's Friend. And it was in these last hours that he repented and trusted Christ as his Savior. So, upon hearing this, Joe told the story of his time in prayer. You see how thinking rightly about now and eternity shapes our prayers? It changes the way we go through trials. It changes the type of things we ask for. Being self-controlled and sober-minded puts our prayers closer and more directed towards the things that God is concerned for. Oh, I hope you want your prayers to be powerful. So let's continue, though, because Peter has more to say about us living when the end is at hand. Notice two things that stand out about the next three commands in verses 8 through 10. First, pay attention to the beginning of verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So he raises this command to a heightened status. Above all, love. Next, notice the repetition that we see in verses 8 through 10. Each command is followed by one another. Above all, love one another. Show hospitality to one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. See, this shows to a, a relationship between all of these commands. And because of this and some other aspects of the language that I'm not going to go into, I think Peter is ultimately saying, keep loving one another by Showing hospitality and using your gifts to serve each other. In other words, showing hospitality and using our gifts to serve our particular ways in which we fulfill the command to love one another. So let's start back now at the command to love, and let's look at that one in particular. First, Peter says, Keep loving one another. You see, he has an expectation that love already exists. Love for the church in the Bible is an expectation. It must exist. If you do not love the church, you do not love Christ. 1 John 4.8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, when we trust in Christ, One of the things that happens is that the Spirit of God floods our hearts and our lives with the love of God, so much so that that begins to pour out in love towards others, particularly towards his children, the church. So Peter rightly says, keep loving one another. The end of all things is at hand. Don't stop loving one another. Now next, notice that he wants our love to abound. He says, keep loving one another earnestly. The word here is often used in Greek to describe a horse whose legs are stretched out, fully extended while galloping, or a muscle stretched to its limits. So you see, our love for one another should consistently be stretched to its limits so let me pause to ask you is your love stretched out towards the church or do you only love when it's easy does your love stretch itself to its limits to love one another fervently or earnestly like Peter is calling us to Now third, notice the reason he gives for this kind of love in verse eight. Since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? I think it means two things in light of other scriptures. Many of you know the chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, the great love chapter. And can I just say Go back and read chapters 12 through 14 and notice that that love chapter is set in the middle of the church gathering together, not just marriages. But there, Paul says, Love is patient, love is kind, love keeps no record of wrongs, love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you see, when we think about this passage, we see that love covers over a multitude of sins. I think Peter is thinking, the end of all things is at hand, and trials are coming your way, and what's going to happen among you is sin, And you may sin against each other, because inevitably that happens. But what earnest love will do is it'll seek to forgive fully, to cover over those sins, to keep them from spreading. This doesn't mean that love doesn't address sin, because sin is dangerous in people's lives. But what it means is that we're quick to forgive. We're quick to believe the best in people. We're quick to hope for restoration and reconciliation. We're quick to continue to endure sin if it happens again, eager to forgive as they seek forgiveness. How many times? How many times? There's such a temptation in our hearts not to love in that way. Peter's saying, love covers over a multitude of sins. Think about those that you love the most, family, spouse. You're willing to cover over a lot of their sins sometimes. Peter's saying, do that with the person across the aisle from you. Do that with the one you don't even know. It means a lot. Now the other passage I think that we need to bring in for our understanding, is James chapter 5 and verses 19 through 20 because it's the only other place in the Bible where we see this same phrase covering cover a multitude of sins. Listen to what James writes. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what's happening in this passage? You see a brother or a sister in sin and you go to them and you say, come back, flee that sin, come back to Christ. What does James say you do? You save their soul from death and you cover over a multitude of sins I think this means that sin is stopped in its tracks someone is restored to Christ and sin's power is broken so a multitude of sins that would have continued in that person's life is halted you see love is willing to call out sin because love wants to restore someone to Christ and cover over those sins it wants people to have joy in Christ So church, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, love one another earnestly. Oh, beloved, if we paused right there and could just understand that command, it would transform our church and our lives. But Peter says more because I think he has two particular ways he wants us to think about love being worked out in our lives. Beginning in verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word here in the original language is fascinating because it's two words combined, friends, strangers. So it literally means friend of strangers. This is stranger love, not stranger danger. And it's particularly directed towards the church. It means we should welcome everyone and seek to care for the well-being of others. And it means that we shouldn't only seek to care in that way for those who are like us, but specifically for those we don't know. If someone walks into Grace Church tomorrow or the next hour and they are in Christ and they don't know anybody here, they should be showered with hospitality from this church because love covers a multitude of sins. Notice that it's also done without grumbling. Now this one kind of cuts deep sometimes because I think there's a temptation, right, to say, okay, I'll show hospitality. I'll open my home or I'll have people over or I'll talk to people. But, boy, it's hard. Man, this is really inconvenient right now. You know, I really want to go somewhere else. You see, we shouldn't complain when we do that. And we shouldn't feel burdened. We should be delighted at the opportunity to love one another that way we should be eager to be hospitable there are many people in our church that I could point to that are eager in that way but I won't you know them already now look at verse 9 this is the second way that Peter sees love working out itself as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Church, do you see what this means? Every single believer in this room has been given a spiritual gift that needs to be used to serve one another. That's what he says, as each has received... You have been given a spiritual gift if you are in this room and you have trusted in Christ and that gift needs to be used to serve one another. And notice that it says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Your gift is grace to you, but it's also a funnel of God's grace to others. So we need to be using it. And let's just be clear, this is, all the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit. Not just teaching, not just some of the supernatural ones. I guess technically they're all supernatural. They come from the Spirit of God. You know, the Bible talks about gifts of wisdom, gifts of service, gifts of giving, right alongside gifts of teaching, Gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues. All of these gifts have been given by God, distributed among the people of God in this room to be used to serve one another in Christ, to funnel God's grace to each other. Now, notice the connection in verse 11. Peter says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God And whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What Peter is doing here is he's giving two general categories of spiritual gifts. Gifts of word and gifts of deeds. They're not ultimately mutually exclusive. I think there are times you use gifts of deeds where you're still using a gift of word. There are times when you use a gift of a word where you're still using a gift of a deed. They can overlap. So we should take aspects of each of these explanations and use them for all of our gifts. So what is Peter doing here? Let's think through this together. He's showing us how these gifts should be exercised. Let's take the first one, word gifts. Things like teaching or prophecy. These are to be used, he says, as one who is speaking oracles of God as one who is speaking the very word of God. Now this doesn't mean that you only use a gift of a word when you're sure that this is a specific word from the Lord. He's using a term of comparison as one who is speaking the oracles of God. So what he's saying is, if you have been given a gift that involves speaking, you should seek to use it in such a way that your desire is to relay what God has said to his people. Do you feel the weight of this gift? I know I do. So the question is, how can we be sure that we're doing this? By weighing everything against scripture. Church, the Bible speaks about false prophets true prophets. They're all out there. The only thing that we can be 100% confident in being the very Word of God is this book. Our flesh can tempt us to think things sometimes that's not the Word of God. So we need to weigh everything by the Scriptures This means that any gift of a word needs to be in agreement with and not in contradiction to the scriptures. For example, let's say you believe you've been given a prophetic word from the Lord, or you have a teaching that you desire to share with the church. The first thing you should do is ask yourself Does this agree with or contradict scripture? first and foremost. And if there are people out there who are constantly saying things that don't agree with scripture, throw it out. Throw it out. And judge everything by the scriptures. If you hear a verse shared, my encouragement to you is take that verse and go back and read four or five verses before, four or five verses out after. Church, I have heard so many prophecies that are denied by the very next saying, the very next verse. It's so deceptive. We need to weigh it. We need to think through it. Paul tells us to do that in 1 Thessalonians. So that's how our gifts of words should be used, as though we're speaking the very words of God. It also means that these gifts should be used to point people to God, to follow God and not us. The next category of gifts is deeds. These are spiritual gifts which should be used in a way that we're relying on and we're reflecting God's strength. Now let's think about these, okay? The gift of service, the gift of giving. There are so many ways that we can can use those gifts in our own strength, aren't there? So what does it mean to use it in a way that magnifies God's strength? So I think it means that if you have a gift like this and you're wanting to exercise that gift, that first and foremost, you're fully aware that it needs to be used in God's strength and not your own. So you're saying in your heart, God, use me by your strength and your power to give to a need or to serve this person. God, make this evident that I have done nothing, but you have done everything. And make my heart aware when you have accomplished what you have desired to display your strength. See, fully relying on his strength, not on our own. Do we see how these gifts should work? So, this brings us then to Peter's final emphasis the goal of it all. Why do we do all of this? Notice the purpose Peter gives in the middle of verse 11. In order that, that's a purpose statement. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, that is the goal of our lives. That should be our aim. All of this should be so that God is glorified. We're not seeking to be self controlled or sober minded so that our prayers will only benefit us, that they'll make us famous, but that they'll make God famous, that they'll display his power. We're seeking to love one another earnestly so that God will be glorified. We show hospitality for the glory of God. We use our gifts to serve one another so God is glorified through Jesus Christ. God receives the glory because, as Peter says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? And the amazing truth is that this will bring you the most joy. That's what's so amazing about this. John Piper says it well. He says, there is nothing more thrilling More joyful, more meaningful, more satisfying than to find our niche in the eternal unfolding of God's glory. Nothing, nothing will delight you more than bringing glory to God. It is the truth. We don't always see it and feel it, but it is the truth. Oh, church, this is such a wonderfully challenging and freeing passage at the same time. It's so challenging, but yet freeing. The end of everything is at hand. Nothing that happens in this life will keep us from eternal joy in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. And I pray he comes back tomorrow. So one question we've been asking ourselves in our home groups is, for application, is to say, what is this passage calling me to believe, desire, or to do? And I personally think this passage is calling us to something in each three of those categories. First, I think it's calling us to believe that the end of all things is really at hand. Do you believe that to be true? Search your heart. Ask yourself, do you believe that to be true? And does it excite your heart when you think about it? Maybe you needed to examine your heart and you need to determine if you really believe that to be true this morning. Maybe that's frightening for you to think about. Because you don't know Christ. There's no need to fear, though, the end of all things. Christ died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And if you place your trust in his death on the cross, you are assured that when he returns, it's only joy. To so do that today, if it's frightening you to think about the fact that the end could come tomorrow. So that's the first thing. I think it's calling us to believe that the end is at hand. The second thing is that I think it's calling us to desire a couple of things. First, to desire to be powerful in prayer. We saw how that works in motivating us towards being self controlled and sober minded. Desire to be powerful in prayer. And it'll fuel your desire to be self-controlled. If you're struggling to be self-controlled, if you're struggling to think rightly, desire to pray and pray and then be self-controlled and sober-minded and pray some more and be self-controlled and sober-minded and pray some more. See how that works? The second is the desire for God to be glorified. Don't desire your fame, don't desire your glory, desire for him to be glorified. And as I said, that's what will bring you the most joy. It really is. Ask anybody here who extends their life for the sake of bringing glory to God, and they will tell you that in those moments they are more joyful than any other moment in life. Ask Dr. Tom what it's like to go to India and do what he does for the glory of God. I guarantee you, he'll tell you brings me the most joy. There's many others in this room I could think about. Ask Aaron and Tash. What it's like to open up their home for the Y Jesus meetings. They'll tell you, it brings me joy to do it for the glory of God. You see, we need to desire that. Are these your desires? Search your heart. If they're not, pray for God to give them to you. Say, God, this is not my desire. My desire is to grow in my work. My desire is to become famous myself. My desire is for selfish things. Change my heart, God. Change my heart to long for your glory. Finally, this passage is calling us all to do something. We can't escape it. Maybe for you, it's to think rightly and to rein in your passions. It's time to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Maybe you're being called to press in to keep loving one another earnestly. Maybe you're being tempted to stop loving one another. And this passage is saying, no, keep on loving one another. The end is at hand. Maybe it's calling you to start loving the church. Maybe it's calling you to start showing hospitality with a cheerful heart. Or maybe it's calling you to use your spiritual gift that you've been given. Ultimately, it's calling us all to grow in each of these areas. You can't walk out here and say, it's not calling me to do something, I'm doing all of this. We could always do it better. We could always be more earnest in our love. We could always be more self-controlled. We could always be more sober-minded. But think specifically about your heart and your life. What's it calling you to do? You see, church, if we believe that the end is at hand and if we desire for God to be glorified and our prayers to be powerful, we will heed these commands with joyful hearts and we will hope fully in the return of Christ. Would you stand with me? Let me pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name right now in this moment magnified in our hearts. God, we don't see your holiness for what it truly is. We don't see your perfection and your worth and your value for what it truly is. So raise our affections to see that. God, I confess that there are many ways from this passage that I need to grow. And I ask for your help and your power to do that. And I ask for all those in this room that you would strengthen their faith to believe that the end is at hand, to desire for you to be glorified, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, to love one another, showing hospitality, and using their gifts. God, transform our lives and our hearts for the sake of your glory. Transform our church for the sake of your fame here in Abu Dhabi. Use us to display your kindness and your mercy. Give us grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.